Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people with Brad Listy. That's me. You can hear me. And this podcast, while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it. It's free. It takes just a few seconds. And then during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. And where it says that, enter other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks cash money. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a lot of other amazing content as well, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge. Get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code Other People when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is where your head is at. This is what your ears are doing. Thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. My name's Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles, and I am your host. It's nice to be with you. Happy Memorial Day weekend. I hope you're enjoying some time off. And uh, if you happen to be in the armed forces and you're overseas... Uh, then I especially hope that you're enjoying some time off. So, uh, you know what? I'm not even going to do a monologue today. I don't know what to say. What have I been doing? I saw Francis Ha. That's what happened to me recently. I saw that movie. I liked it. I enjoyed it. There's a certain romance to it. I think it's worth seeing. But uh, just to be honest with you, I was plagued while I was watching it with the subtext of the personal lives of the people who made it. I kept thinking about Noah Baumbach and uh, his divorce from Jennifer Jason Leigh and how he then wound up dating Greta Gerwig, who stars in Francis Ha. You know, 
what would it be like? This is what was going through my head. What would it be like to be married to someone and then you divorce and then they wind up with the person that you knew who you were in a movie with, you know, I think they were in a movie together, Jennifer Jason Lee and Greta Gerwig, but it's just complicated. And then to be Jennifer Jason Lee and to see your ex go on to make a uh, romantic movie critically acclaimed with his new significantly younger girlfriend. <laughs> uh, that's what I was thinking about. Why couldn't I just enjoy the movie? This is why I don't want to know about the personal lives of people, especially you know when it comes to the arts because it complicates the experience. But, uh, you know, whatever. I'm sure they're all fine. I hope they're all fine. And the movie's good. Greta Gerwig is very charming on screen. And uh, I would give it like, you know what, a 7 out of 10? Somewhere in there. It sort of came apart for me at the end. But overall, a very pleasant, you know, hour and 20 minutes. So there's my review. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Masha Hamilton. I'm very pleased to have her here on the program, and she seems like a fitting guest for Memorial Day weekend. Uh, Masha is currently working in Afghanistan as the Director of uh, Communications and public diplomacy at the U.S. Embassy. Uh, she's the author of four critically acclaimed novels, the latest of which is called What Changes Everything, and that is available now from Unbridled Books. Uh, in addition to her current diplomatic work and her work as an author, Masha also has a long and decorated history as a journalist covering conflict zones around the world, uh, particularly in the Middle East, and uh, she's the founder of two world literacy projects, the Camel Book Drive and the Afghan Women's Writing Project. So uh, she's accomplished a great deal, and it's a, a real pleasure to have her here on the program. Uh, I won't waste any more time getting to the interview. This here is my conversation with Masha Hamilton, and her new novel, once again, is called What Changes Everything. <laughs> I am in Brooklyn, New York. Thank goodness I just got here uh, a little bit more than 24 hours ago. I'm in my bedroom right now, which is on the third floor, looking down on the street below. Um, this is a brownstone that's also been turned into a bed and breakfast. We run a bed and breakfast from it. So below me are rooms with guests. I don't. I think they're all out enjoying the day, though. I don't think any of them are in it right now. 
So you actually your your place is a bed and breakfast, and you run that with family or? Uh, yes, my family. My son is while I'm in Afghanistan. My son is managing it. My 22 year old son. One of my novels actually sold for real money. And I knew at the time that would be a very rare thing. <laughs> so we used the money to put it down on this place and, you know, moved in with, you know, our three kids and a fourth that we were taking care of. And now um, two of the kids are still here uh, and we're running it as a bed and breakfast. That's a wise move. You know, not everybody who sells a book for real money makes a, makes a wise move like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew it would be like, I really thought at the time, okay, this is not going to happen again. So <laughs> let's do something with it right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned Afghanistan, and I want to make sure that listeners are oriented in terms of, uh, you know, what's the, it's not bi-coastal, but, you know, you, you, you split your time, I don't know how evenly or unevenly, between Afghanistan and Brooklyn, Correct. Well, right now I'm actually working uh, in Afghanistan uh, really seven days a week um, as the Embassy of Director of Communications. And so I don't get here very often. Last time I was here, I was only here once in, before in the last year, and that was uh, in January uh, around New Year's time. Okay. And you live in Kabul? And, and is it pronounced Kabul or is it Kabul? Kab- I pronounce it Kabul. Okay, okay good. <laughs> and I, I think... Um, and I, uh, I'm there for a number of months more. I'm not sure exactly how long. Uh, and then I'll be back here to Brooklyn. Okay. So like, and can you tell me how you wound up uh, becoming the Director of Communications and Public Diplomacy at, at the <laughs> U.S. Embassy in Afghanistan? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty uh, unusual. I, uh, I, my one son, my oldest son, was about to turn 21 in the summer of 2011. I'd been going to Afghanistan for a while and I had founded a nonprofit there, um, the Afghan Women's Writing Project, which, is, uh, which was founded on the impetus that, that to tell one's story is a human right and that women had been denied that right too long and it was dedicated to a woman who was executed by the Taliban in 1999 without ever being able to tell her story. Um, so my son was turning 21 and I said, you know, 21, that's kind of a big one. I'm not going to buy you a car, but if there's something that you would really like, you should tell me and maybe we'll see. And so, uh, you know, a week or so went by and he said, I, I've decided what I want for my 21st birthday. I want to go with you to Afghanistan. So the two of us went to Afghanistan that summer. Um, we flew back actually on the day he turned 21. Um, and we we went to the Panjshir Valley and Harad, and we were in Kabul. And while I was there, I got a call asking me to meet with the then ambassador, Ambassador Crocker. Um, and I really kind of did it on a lark. I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, I just went to see him. And uh, he, we had a conversation. And then at the end of that, he offered me um, this job that I have, that I've since taken. I didn't say yes right away. I was shocked and stunned, and my head was reeling. Um, but then I did say yes. Yeah, that seems like so that's one, how it happened. That, that seems like one you would need to think about. You know, like yes, that's right. I want to take right. a, I want to take a few days just to contemplate. <laughs> uh, and then you know, it's very easy I think to imagine, uh, based on the news reports that we get here stateside, the kind of uh, experience one would have being on the ground in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, I, I think like there's a tendency to want to 
sensationalize uh, those imaginings and, and to see it as as a constant, you know, as, as being in a constant state of danger. And is it that way? I mean, it, it, or is it not that? No, way? it's not. I, no, it's not. And you know, I've been going to Afghanistan since 2004, and. When I went in 2004, it was great. I was able to go into Kandahar. Um, I was able to go into the poppy fields, talk to child brides. Uh, I was able to do all kinds of things, able to go to Logar and Wardak and provinces that I really cannot visit now. Um, and, you know, it's it's certainly more dangerous than that, but there's an expat community that lives there, and... Uh, I, you know, you get out and you see them since I've been there. This time I have gone back to Kandahar and Jalalabad and Herat and Mazar and Ghazni, other places, under a little bit more strict security requirements, but it's not a place of constant. There's a lot of normal things going on there uh, with Afghans. There's a lot of Afghans being educated. There's a lot of Afghans, you know, doing all the normal things that they do, and, and the foreigners uh, there for their own reasons, are also living normal, more or less normal lives. So when you're moving around, just because you always hear these stories of oppression, particularly uh, when it comes to women, but when you're moving around the streets of Kabul, uh, do, you, I mean, do you feel relatively safe? Well, in this particular uh, situation, I don't move around as freely as I did in 2011 because um, – the sense is that if you work for the government, you're more likely to be targeted, and so the security precautions are greater. Um, but in 2011, when I went with my son that summer, uh, I moved around. We moved around fairly freely. I wouldn't, you wouldn't walk around at night, really. You would take some precautions. Um, I didn't say where I was going then in 2011. I didn't tell people in advance. I didn't stay too long. I kept my, my street sense about me. You know, I remember looking up at one point when I was uh, in an area of Kabul where I was interviewing women drug addicts, and I noticed a guy kind of looking at me a little bit oddly and talking on his cell phone, and I thought, ah, it's time to go. You don't want to be a target of opportunity who gets kidnapped for a criminal reason or something, you know, along those lines. So, you know, you keep your sense, uh, senses about you, but uh, I wouldn't say, you know, it's, you're not constantly walking into danger. And there are a lot of Afghans, as I say, you know, leading, you know, somewhat leading, I don't want to oversay it, it's just a, a conflict zone, but they're leading more or less normal lives. Okay, and then what about, how, how deeply entrenched is, you know, the, the misogyny or the, you know, the anti-women sentiment that we hear so much about in the news that, you know, the Taliban, the, the awful treatment of women and the lack of education. Like, how, like, do you get a sense that there are a lot of uh, men in Afghan culture who are not like that? Or is it really, like, really pervasive? There are men who are not like that by all means, particularly young and educated. There is certainly a, a group that believes uh, and remember that illiteracy is extremely high there, so they, they may base this belief on having never read the Quran, but they believe that Islam means that women need to be treated in certain ways and must be treated in certain ways, and anything else, you know, some kind of an implant by the immoral Western uh, mentality or something like that. We have just seen in the last several days, and, and you're probably not following these news from there to this, to this degree, but um, there was an attempt uh, by a woman parliamentarian to put into a, uh, place a law 
uh, have had the parliament pass a law that was already approved by presidential decree and that ensures the rights of women and it caused concern within the parliament and she withdrew it so that, that sentiment remains but that said i know a lot of men um, who really support their sisters their wives their mothers uh, and their right to get educated uh, and to and to live full and complete lives. So it's not it's not black and white by any means. Do you have are you are you I mean after all these years working there as a journalist and and then now working in um, you know at the embassy like are you more hopeful now than you used to be or less? I think that that in some ways I'm more helpful hopeful in that in such a way that there's been a tipping point in in some of the cities I believe where women, enough women are being educated, enough women are involved in society, that they aren't going to go back. Um, in some of the outflung villages, I'm less hopeful uh, for the immediate future. It's going to be a longer-term effort on the part of Afghans themselves to make the changes that feel right to them there. And while those changes are being made, uh, I, I, I feel fairly certain there will continue to be injustice toward women and others. Yeah, I mean, there's like, yeah, it seems like there's a lot of resistance and, but also a lot of progress, you know, I don't know. It's just, you read, I I, I don't, I'm always, I guess I'm excited to talk to you because I feel like maybe the, the media coverage that I'm getting here might be limited in some way, you know, like, do you feel like as a, you know, as a journalist, do you feel like people who read the news regularly as I do are getting enough information about what's, what's actually happening over there? No, and I and I think it's probably the fault of of we journalists, and it happens for a couple of reasons. First of all, there's a human desire to kind of simplify the story, and as I've sort of tried to indicate, it's not simple. There is a lot of gray. There's progress, and there's no progress. Uh, and the other issue is that a number of the journalists covering Afghanistan uh, covered Iraq, and so they feel like, hey, I know the story. I've already been here, and I know the ending. I can write it now. <laughs> and it's not, it's not Iraq. It's not Iraq. It's not the same thing. And so it's a little bit of an effort to kind of get them to, to approach it with that sort of open-mindedness open and complexity to the story itself. Yeah. And then, um, you know, I, I guess like with all the stuff that you do, I mean, it, it sounds like you're incredibly busy and you've accomplished a great deal uh, it be, and you're living in, in Kabul. It, uh, I'm trying to imagine how you write. Like, how do you get fiction work done? <laughs> Not in Kabul. <laughs> Not okay. now, because I really am working seven days a week. Um, this novel was done before I took the job, essentially. Uh, I took a break in Oman and did the final, you know, uh, edits of, of the novel, really just the final things. Um, I've done a teeny bit of writing uh, but mostly very early in the morning when I am, you know, when something is just pressing against me that I just can't keep in and primarily for my own purposes uh, to get something out. And then what about um, any kind of creative community? Like you mentioned earlier, the Afghan Women Writers Project, but uh, like, have you managed to meet other, I mean, I know you meet journalists or I would imagine, you know, journalists over there, but do you know any other writers of fiction, uh, you know, who live there? Do you have any kind of like creative community going? No, I don't. I do know. I do work closely with the journalists in many ways. 
I don't, I'm, I've had to resign from my immediate work with the Afghan Women's Writing Project because of potential conflict of interest when I took this job. They're continuing to work. Their website is very active, and I, I follow it from a bit of a distance. Um, I uh, was asked to teach uh, a, just a, you know, a, a one-off uh, at American University of Afghanistan, met people there. I know there are people with stories to tell and people who are interested in telling them, but I'm not really part of that community through the, in this in this current phase of my life. You know, and you know who just popped into my uh, into my mind. And forgive me if I get this name wrong, but it's the, the young the young girl who was shot. Her name is Malala. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Have you yeah. ever, have you ever met? I mean, she is so impressive to me. Like whenever I see her speak on camera, I'm just like blown away. I can't. I feel like. Uh, she is like my superior in every way. <laughs> and this kid, she's so... You know, I think that in some ways what you've just said is why I keep trying to write about war and conflict in, in these novels uh, in various different ways. It's because I think that the experience... You said she's my superior in every way. Well, I don't know if that's true, but this experience, she has taken this experience and grown and soared from it, you know, from the limitations and the conflicts and the restrictions that people tried to put on her. Uh, and I, I feel like those situations, as difficult and painful as they truly are, um, the reason that they have drawn me back over and over and over again is that they're sort of like this you know, like, like distilling somebody to the perfume or putting them under a hot fire so that they're just this pure form of whatever they are. Right. And in that pure form, they're either like, uh, you know, I mean, they can be like incredible and you just are, you just are, you know, rooted to the place or they can, or the worst of them can come out or it's dramatic. It's more dramatic what emerges and it's, um, it's compelling to watch. I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, maybe like the, the word that I, or the phrasing that I should have used is that I find myself just filled with such deep admiration for her because, you know, mm -hmm. here, here I am with my like silly little problems in Los Angeles. And, you know, this girl has a, like the, the, the deck is stacked against her and she's uh, got, you know, she's got so much self-possession and I don't know, you know, such a great spirit. It's, it's amazing to witness. Yeah, it is. And I think that, again, that's one of the things about, you know, conflict and living in conflict is that at least for a period, you are, you're, you're sort of, your life gets sorted out and you go like, these things don't matter. These things are petty. These things are really irrelevant. And these are the things that matter. And then, of course, you get back into your regular life and you forget that. But for a while, it sort of distills that out so that you really, you see what matters. Mm -hmm. and you And you find yourself more resistant to you know, spending an afternoon stressed out over something that doesn't. Well, you know, you know what? Uh, that sentiment reminds me of the uh, of Chris, the, the work of Chris Hedges. I don't know if you've ever read War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. Um, of course I have. Chris is a friend, yeah. Oh, he is. Okay. I mean, I'm just like, I'm, I'm a big fan of his. And I think, uh, and then I think that book was um, quoted. Uh, it was like the epigraph for The Hurt Locker. But there is, uh, I think, a lot of truth in what he says about the addictive nature of conflict zones. And he, he talks about wrestling with that as a journalist. And I think soldiers a lot of times have that experience where when you live in these really intense conflict zones, uh, like you say, you know, it's, it sort of separates the wheat from the chaff and it, um, there's a clarity to them, you know, that mm -hmm. is, is mm -hmm. lacking in kind of the humdrum, uh, normality of everyday life back in the States. And there's, there's that great scene at the end of the hurt locker where the, uh, where the lead character, what's the actor's name? Jeremy Renner. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. He's back at like the supermarket and he's just like, what is this? You know, like, what am I doing here? Like, 
do you find you know that's so exactly right and uh, I, my second novel tries to touch on exactly that that theme and I had a journalist friend from that period who told me who referred to going to, going to the grocery store in the United States and saying like oh my god so many choices of cereal are you kidding me uh, you know and I think I think this is this is so exactly to the point the addictiveness of of covering conflict um, and yes for soldiers the fact that you are your your life seems to have more meaning, or you you see the meaning more clearly, and also that making relationships often that are deeper uh, because you don't waste time doing the usual sorts of conversations. You just there's not small talk. You don't <laughs> you don't have a lot of small talk time. You go directly to it. You know, I was and say, that there's some. Well, I was just I was imagining. Yeah, go ahead. I was just imagine. You know, this is sort of a a goofy thought, but I just imagine like two fo- like soldiers in a foxhole, and then I imagine small talk, and it's just it's immediately absurd. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's right. Uh, so, do you ever have you ever grown concerned that um, you're addicted to it in a way that might be unhealthy? Well, I think uh, I think that I'm running to the end of my of my desire to see it. I mean, up close like this. It's, uh, you know, really and truly, as a journalist, one of the first things I wanted to do was cover conflict up close. I wanted to have that experience of seeing it in a, in a unvarnished, clear, firsthand kind of way. And I I think that some of that has remained with me, you know, some of that interest and being compelled along that way has remained has remained with me, but I I also think that every time you do suffer a loss or you are you or you're forced to look at the at the meaningless aspect of what it is. Again, it's that gray part. It can be extremely meaningful and and purifying in certain ways, and then there's a meaningless aspect of it. And when you're forced to look at that, you know you do you do start to wonder. Okay, so maybe this is maybe maybe this is enough. Maybe I've done my my lives. Maybe you know. Maybe I've seen what I need to see on this, and I have to pull that knowledge and information somewhere else. Yeah, and you said you know that you said that early on. I mean, I'm interested in in knowing more about the origin of your journalism career, like how you got into this particular line of work, and then how you got into covering foreign conflict in particular. Um, do you have a sense of where the uh, initial spark of interest came from? Uh, in journalism, I think it really came from the desire to write. I really. I'm, I'm one of those annoying types that, you know, knew at age 10 I wanted to write. <laughs> but that's how I would understand my experiences in my life and and some form of what other people were doing. Um, and But I, I didn't know how to do it and, and, you know, what would make sense. I could write a novel or something like that. So from there I, I became a journalist um, and worked for the AP and was in New York. And I think I just, you know, in reading about conflict and and reading the stories of how people behave, it just became more and more interesting to me in in almost a theoretical kind of the dramatic arc of a story way, you know. Um, and, and so one thing led to another, and the first place that I covered conflict was in the Middle East, in Jerusalem, where it's really uh, complex and every side has a piece of the truth, in my opinion. Um, and so that's that's where I was with that. 
Okay, so like you, you get started in journalism. Was this right out of college uh, kind of thing? Like your first job? You, yes. And what kind of job? Yes. What kind of jobs did you start out doing? I, I mean, I I imagine things have changed a great deal since you started, and and how things are now. Journalism seems to be <laughs> seems to be going through a transition. I think they have. <laughs> yeah, I think they have. I I graduated from Brown University. I still get inquiries from Brown students saying, "Can you mentor me about?" you know, how I can get into journalism. And I was like, no, I actually can't. I don't, have no idea anymore how to do it. But I started out in that old traditional way of writing obits, right, for a, a newspaper in Brunswick, Maine, the Brunswick Times-Herald. You know, so it's sort of that typical thing. And then got hired by the AP and uh, and, and stayed with the AP for quite a while. And that's who I went overseas with uh, to the Middle East and then was hired by the LA Times and went with them to Moscow and so on and so forth. Okay, so you're in you're in Jerusalem they put you up in an apartment, and then you're, you know, what does your daily work entail? Uh, well, the five years that I was there, uh, uh, the first intifada began. Uh, the Israelis were in Lebanon, and they had a partial withdrawal. Um, so there was a lot to do right there. You have the West Bank, the Gaza Strip. Um, there was a lot to do, a lot to cover right there. And also, you saw... Uh, I saw firsthand the extremism, uh, the intolerance of some religious, the, the fervent around, you know, around Christianity and Islam and Judaism all right there in Jerusalem, which is really this amazing sort of magical place. Uh, and to see firsthand, you know, the sort of onward Christian soldiers, sort of how everyone's just adamant about, about you know, their way and their beliefs and how it w- could get stirred into this sort of fervor, um, also led me to another theme that I keep seeing, seeming to hit in my books, which is, you know, spirituality and the meaning of spirituality and, you know, what happens when you, when you have it and what happens when you dump it and you don't have it. And, you know, I think, I think a lot of that sort of questioning that I keep doing has its origins in that period. Yeah, I mean, it's like I, I I'll think about this stuff sometimes, and I think about le- you know political leaders, you know, who have a lot to. I think they have a lot to say and do about how these things play out, and it's like, what is the answer? Like, how do we achieve, especially in a place like Jerusalem or in you know Israel in the Middle East? Like, what's going to have to happen for there to be some kind of uh, peace? Like, do you do you have any answers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish I did. No, I mean, you know, I have the answers that everyone uh, thinks of, which is Jerusalem is kind of an insolvable problem, and wouldn't it be great if it were an international city in some way, and maybe there'll be a generation that will, will go for that. But I, I also feel that, you know, that the impulse for peace, um, which grabs holds a hold of certain individuals, men and women, may not be enough for actual peace to happen it may have to grab hold of an entire generation entire generation may just have to feel this is the only way to go you know you have a fighting man like Isaac Rabin who says okay this isn't working and really does something very distasteful to him and makes peace with the enemy but he does it but it's not enough one 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 person even a powerful leading person is not enough to change that entire wave and this is certainly something I've thought about a lot um, since being in Kabul in this role, can one person change the course of history? And I always used to think no, but I now see yes in certain ways. However, not this wave, not this wave of, of conflict and war. One person is not enough 
to reverse, to halt or reverse that, I don't think. It has to be generational. Yeah, like some sort of community effort. And I feel like, like you know, they always have these, like, there's always like peace talks or there's, you know, closed-door meetings between the leaders or, you know, at least there have been in the past. And there's a part of me that wishes they were public. Like, there's got to be some sort of, like, dialogue that, like, everyone can participate in that's constructive. Like, even if they're not actually, you know, asking questions and communicating directly but it, it just i don't know maybe that's the maybe that's not the right way but i it seems to me like there needs to be some sort of like public dialogue so people can see uh that we're all human beings and there's got to be some shared interest, yes you know? <laughs> yes but here's the thing here and this is very interesting and it goes more directly to what i'm doing now and here's the thing if you could have completely honest conversations like this and other people could hear them and partake in, into their own views it would be great but all negotiations seem to have a certain amount of posturing and uh you know to allow that posturing not to get too big they need to be private because when the posturing is made public, everyone gets louder and their their public viewpoint gets hardened. And, you know, I mean, I think part of what I'm doing in my current job is to urge everybody not to, not to go public with the stuff that, that we know is happening because then the negotiators will have a better opportunity to actually reach some kind of an agreement. And if it all goes public, everybody has to say, oh, yes, that person is, that viewpoint is... Uh, you know, it gets bigger and louder and louder, and every, it becomes harder to walk off that line and find a middle ground where you can really do something. You know, that's interesting to hear you say that because I think there's like, you know, there's different examples of this, but it's it's a delicate dance. And, uh, you know, you look at like even American politics, and I think sometimes people are urging politicians to be bolder or to just, you know, just speak out, just say it. and. The, mm-hmm. the the irony is that that can actually be detrimental to the cause, you know, like, yeah. um, it can actually harm the uh, the potential for the desired outcome to actually occur. You know? That's right. I think that's right. And especially if somebody feels they're not speaking just for themselves, but they're speaking for their cause or their party or their nation. And then it, they, it gets it gets wound up even more. Yeah. Well, you have in, like in, a, in your role or in the role of a politician, even there's like there's a lot of discipline that need like that needs to. It takes a lot mm-hmm. of discipline. It can be easy to 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 jump off message or to let emotion overtake you, and you sort of have to keep your eye on the ball. I'd imagine. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. So, um, you know, all this travel, all this international living, all this uh, all these conflict zones. Uh, you raised a family through all this uh, throughout this process. Mm-hmm. How did that yeah. work? I'm curious to know because I have a young child, and I'm thinking to myself, my goodness, like where you're. You, you, were hauling, you, you were hauling the kids all over the world? Were they raised in international schools and whatnot? No, no. For high school, everybody was back here in New York City. So that, that's excellent. Um, the, I mean, I think, you know, the kids have been really, really, really important to me. Being a parent is extremely important, and I'm very, you know, it's the, it's the one thing I'd like to be best at, if there's any one thing. I think um, it's been... I think it's been good for them. They've, they've, they're broader in their understanding of the world. They're more accepting. They're more tolerant. Um, they've met a lot of people, obviously, from different countries, and and you know, and I think, I mean, I think they're grounded. I mean, one shouldn't talk too much, right? Because you know, but poo poo poo, uh, they all seem to be doing really um, well, and they're all interested in. In things that are like facets of of what of what our life 
together has been, you know, whether it's, you know, nonprofits, refugees, photography, journalism, politics, public policy, you know, each of them has their own particular interests, but they, they circle around these same things that have, have also interested me and uh, that, that our life together has been about. So, so the answer is yes, they were with you in, in Israel. Like, I mean, correct? Like you actually lived there full time with them or were you, were you? Yeah, we, well, yeah, the first one was born while I was in Israel. Then uh, two of them I lived with in Moscow. Uh, and when uh, communism was collapsing and I, I remember there were these fires going on outside at night with these uh, diehard communists who did not want to give up their cards, their, you know, Lenin and Stalin cards. And I, I took my, my young, my son then, very young, to there, and they all were feeding him various little breads and donuts and things. And, you know, I did my interviews in that way. So, you know, I mean, yes, they, I, you know, they went with me uh, as we did those kinds of things. They were very, they were young, you know, but then, uh, then I came back here and started writing novels. And so then they had a very relatively stable childhood from that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, all the stuff you say too, about how it's manifested in the decisions they've made as young adults or whatever, that encourages me. And I think that, you know, more exposure to the rest of the world and to the way other cultures operate and the way other people live is, is really healthy, you know, and, and not just for Americans, you know, looking outward, but also for other people of other countries. Like the more interconnected we realize we are, I think the better off we'll ultimately be. You know, I have to believe. I so, I, I so agree with that. And, you know, the first time I went to Afghanistan, which was 2004, I went alone and, um, you know, I, I heard a lot of comments from people. My kids were, you know, younger than all of them. And uh, people were saying, like, you know, you can't, shouldn't do this. And was, a woman that I jogged with said, do you want to write a letter and leave it with me in case something happens to you? And I said, no, I don't. Uh, and, I mean, I thought about it. I thought about what I was hearing because it was a weird situation to be hearing hearing the message of you're not a good mother because you're going to do this. You know, I mean, <laughs> um, but I really ended up, I really ended up feeling that one of the messages I wanted my kids to have is, you know, yes, the world's a dangerous place, and yes, you need to bring your wits about you, and you don't just need to blunder off into somewhere, but it's not so dangerous that you shouldn't live out your dreams, that you shouldn't do the things that you really care about doing if you do. And I, I'd been following Afghanistan and, and the situation for women there since, since the late 90s and really wanted to go myself and, and see it and touch it and also had been in conflict zones and knew I could do it, you know, and, and set things up. And so I, I felt that that was an important thing for me by example to be showing them. Yeah, I think it's awesome. And, and you know, it, uh, I think that uh, it's interesting to hear you talk about, I, I don't know, I feel like a lot of people who are giving you those warnings or might be sending the message that it's the wrong thing to do or coming from a place of fear. And uh, it's nice to hear that you decided to not pay attention to that. <laughs> you know, it, would be yeah. easy, it, would be, it would be easy to do in a place like Afghanistan. But, you know, like you found a way to operate in spite of that because i'm sure there is some fear right i mean when you touch down in afghanistan you've got to be on on a little bit more of a high alert you know absolutely there are there's definitely there's definitely that um but you know i remember that my my oldest child was um the first time i went i'm thinking she was like a sophomore in high school and uh in brooklyn at night about a, a week or so before 
I left. She went with some friends into the park at night in the dark without any. And so I called, and you know, there they were. And I said, please come out of the park. You know, it's there's been bad stuff going on there. You know, you can walk down Seventh Avenue in the light. You can come here, and I won't bother you. You can sit in the living room, whatever. But get out of the park. And I waited a couple of days because I was really much. I was angrier than I you can you can hear in my voice now. And I said to her, look, you know. I'm going to be gone in like a couple of days, and I really, I do not want to be worried that you are walking around in the park in the dark of night. And she said, you are going to Afghanistan, and you are telling me? <laughs> <laughs> and I had to laugh. Yeah. And she had a point. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's funny. You don't have much ground to stand on when you're, you're, you're flying yeah. off to Kabul. <laughs> Yeah, it kind of backfired. My my parenting skills at that point were were left wanting for sure. <laughs> um, so I want to ask you about. I mean, we we've talked about the the journalism career and the work that you've done, and um, I'm interested to know about the turn to fiction. Uh, you know, and why you made that decision. Well, let me just ask you: Why did you make that decision? Why did you start writing fiction in the midst of all this journalism work? Because I wanted to go somewhere deeper, where I could find a deeper truth than I think you do with most journalism. Um, I, it's not that I was telling lies as a journalist or, or that any of my friends are, but uh, you have to go, first of all, you, have to, you, ha- you, you can only go so deep. For example, if I'm interviewing you and I start to have a feeling that you're not actually telling me the truth, and I feel that because you're not meeting my eyes anymore and you cross your hands over your chest in a funny way. And I try to put that in my story. <laughs> my editor is going to call me up and go, what are you doing? Take a break. Go have a vacation. This is, you know, so, but as a, as a fiction writer, this is the stuff. This is the stuff that helps you go deeper and understand what's really going on with that person and how maybe they are telling you the truth but not the whole truth. And what's, It just allows you to open up an entire different world that is actually – that inner dialogue is, is really practically constantly running in my head, and I figure it is in most people's too. And this allows you to access that other ongoing, continuous um, reality and really explore in depth – the questions that you have without being told by your editor, that's great. That was last week's story, but now we've got this. Right. And, and then what about like, what about the, um, like your feelings, uh, r- with regard to your fiction, um, but also your, your work, uh, in other realms. Like, what do you think about the idea of the writer as a public intellectual? Like, do you feel like uh, a deep responsibility, you know, as a writer to, be uh, politically engaged uh, with the world or to have, um, you know, the, these themes about, you know, involving social justice uh, in, in, embedded in your work. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you have, like, a, a real sense of mission in that? No, respect? I don't. No, I think, sometimes I think, why the hell can't I write a good beach book? I think, <laughs> you know, I honestly think that the only responsibility we have is to try to be as true to our own inner voice as we possibly can. It just happens that this is who I am, and this is what interests me, and this is where I end up. Um, but I, I don't think we have that responsibility as writers. I think really our responsibility is just to try to be, to be true to that inner voice as much as possible. And with all the self-doubt and questioning that's going to come with it, you know, that, that sincere question, why can't I write a beach book? Why don't I write just something that's really funny? I'm not, I'm, I can be funny. Why can't I just write something really, really funny? You know, <laughs> all of that, if we can, if we can quiet those self-doubts long enough just to let whatever it is is the actual real authentic voice come out, 
that that's that's the only real responsibility we have. And so, and how long do you feel like you've known that this was your your authentic voice? Like these were the issues. Is this something that you feel like has been a part of your whole adult life, or was there a moment of epiphany somewhere along the line? No, I mean these are all the questions I ask. But you know, I also ask really more, you know, more more mundane questions. I, I mean, Thirty One Hours, which is a novel before this one, um, you know, part of what I'm asking is, how do you parent a teenager? <laughs> And the the main character is 21, 22, but still, how do you parent a child that's no longer a child if they need parenting? So this is really a domestic question, but it was really a burning question to me at that time, and one that I explored through this novel in a way that's, you know, you can't really, it's not apparent, you know, easily, but, but with the mother character. So it's not that I just am interested in, you know, in international questions about conflict and and who leads and who follows. But I really do. I really am interested in those questions of family and relationship, too. Well, see, I have a young child, so now I'm thinking to myself, how do you parent a teenager who, or in a, you know, a child who's no longer a child? Do you have an answer to that so I can save it for later? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I think uh, that there's probably bound to be guilt no matter what happens. Even when everything turns out right, you're going to think, well, geez, maybe I should have done this, or if I hadn't done that, I mean about the big things or the little things. And, and I, I think, I mean, that's what happens in 31 hours really is that, you know, the mother and the father are separated, but they're drawn together over worry about their son. And, and particularly for the mother, there's a lot of questioning, like, why did we, why did we do that? You know, why did we, why did we do this? And I think that's probably part of being a thinking parent. Right. I mean, yeah, you have you have to have a little. I mean, if you're not doubting yourself or questioning your, yourself, then you know that that's probably a bad thing. If you're just a hundred percent confident, yes. <laughs> that frightens. Yes, me. I think that's right. Um, I think that's right. So, and you talked earlier about you know, uh, the, you know your 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 voice, these things that interest you, whether it's uh, international conflict or these uh, more intimate domestic family related questions. But when it comes to your reading life. Uh, do you find yourself, I mean, I, I guess it could go one of two ways. I'm either imagining that you read really heavy stuff, like, you know, that's like deeply intellectual philosophical meditations on the nature of man and war, or are you like writing those kinds of books or books that tilt in that direction, but then reading beach books just to give yourself a break? <laughs> yeah, no, I don't read beach books. And that's probably why I won't, won't be able to write a good one. I do tend to be drawn to, um, books that are looking at all kinds of, of different issues, both international and domestic. And when I can find them, international and domestic. And when I'm writing, I read poetry, a lot of poetry, you know. Um, so, yeah. Do you feel That's it. I, I'm, not, I'm not one of those people that has a bunch of romances by my bed. <laughs> We've written about characters like that in exercises that I sometimes give my writing students, but no, it's not me. Okay. And then, like, in terms of, like, the literature of conflict or war literature, like, are, are there people out there um, that you can think of offhand that you feel are telling these stories especially well? Like, we, we mentioned Chris Hedges earlier. Like, I think he's... Yeah, Chris is great. Mohsen Hamid from Pakistan is, is great. Um, there's a, a journalist who did a, something out of Bosnia. Um, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, that was just his story, but it was also excellent. Um, there's old, there's old war poetry that I sometimes like to read that is almost, 
I mean, really like, you know, 200 years old, 150 years old, written often by young soldiers that almost just stops you in its, you know, in, in its starkness and the pity you feel for what they're going through. And also the sense that this, the same emotion, maybe in not quite the same sort of old-fashioned language, but the same emotion is expressed by soldiers today. Um, so, yeah, well, it doesn't change, you know, or like like uh, the the core of it probably doesn't change. You know, war is war. It, you know, even if you're using drones or you know all these different technologies that we have now, the the basic mechanics of it are the same. You know. Yeah, maybe uh, so. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I'm I'm speculating, but it seems that way. You know, conflict is conflict yeah. ultimately between between yeah. men. So. I mean, I've, you raised a really an interesting question that I think about. I mean, the reason I hesitate is I'm not sure it feels the same to do a drone, to drop a drone. I just, I don't know, and I've thought about that. Um, I don't know if you know the project Shoot in the Rocky. Uh, did you ever, have you ever seen that project? No. This, uh, this, this, uh, I don't have his name, but you can find him on YouTube and elsewhere. He's an Iraq who was going to school here, and his brother was killed by uh, a bomb dropped from the American uh Warplane, some kind of a, and then his father dies. He says of 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 a broken heart, and he felt extremely guilty to be here in this country, going to school. I think in Boston or something, and so he did this project called Shooting a Rocky, where he went into a very small room and people shot at him with paintballs, and he did it for 31 days in this small room, and he did it to to assuage his guilt, to try to find the start of healing, and also kind of to explore that whole that whole thing of people shooting at him without even knowing who he was, you know, without, like a game, like a game. You know what, yeah. So anyway, it's an interesting, it's an interesting project, and it, and it raises the question of what you're saying. Like, I don't know if conflict feels exactly the same when you're doing it that way. I just, I don't know. Yeah, no, that's, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think like the, I, I shouldn't have said drone because that makes it more like a video game. It, it detaches you. It's, it's, I mean, let's put it this way. It's got to be a lot different to be engaging in drone warfare than to be in World War One in the trenches. You know? Yes, yeah, I think so. I think so, yeah. Um, but I think it's still like, I think there's still a lot of uh, stress. Angst. Yeah, there's yeah lot, there's stress lot, for sure. There's a lot of stress on those people who are in those, I mean, whether they know it or not, I mean, it's still like a really grim thing. I don't know. It, it, it freaks me out. I think you're right. You know, I worry about, yeah. I th- and I'm sure a lot of us worry about, like, what, like, what's the end game with drone warfare? Like, where does this go? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Especially, yes. especially once you can like buy a drone on Amazon, you know, for or, or like Apple yeah. when Apple releases the iDrone, drone, like that's going to be the end. You know? <laughs> oh God, it's a horrible thought. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, so I want to ask you a couple questions about the book. Um, you know, specific questions. Like one of them, uh, the interesting aspects of it uh, is the inclusion of letters from an actual politician and forgive me if i'm messing this name up but it's mohammed najibullah is that right yeah right exactly so like you know you, these the letters that you included are fictionalized but they're rooted in yes. some they're rooted in some actual research and contact with one of his daughters correct right so that's correct how did how did that uh, how did that come about you know like first of all the decision to include them and then 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 secondly um, getting in contact with one of the daughters and, and helping to craft the letters in a way that, I don't know, gave them some authenticity or depth. 
Well, Najibullah, I think, is an interesting character. Um, yeah, why don't, you explain who many, he, why don't you explain who he is just for listeners who might not have context? Yeah, he, he was head of the country during the uh, period when the Soviets were there, and then after they withdrew, he managed to re- retain leadership for a couple of years beyond that. And then he... Um, and he he he's compelling. He was a compelling guy. He was, um, you know, he was flirtatious with women, uh, and yet extremely devoted to his wife and three daughters. Um, and a very smart, articulate guy who was also associated with a lot of of, of suspected enormous atrocities against people that he he arrested and detained, and and some say even personally. Um, tortured or, or put to death. So, you know, he's the kind of character, if you will, that you just you're drawn to because of his of his complexity. Um, and I wanted he was then um, he re- he did a deal to with the United Nations to turn over the presidency and to leave the country and join his wife and daughter in Delhi, as where the daughters three of them in Delhi where they were at the time. Um, and so he took off, and he, it was hard for him to do this. It took, a, you know, it was an insult to his pride and all of that. But he did it, and he took off to, for the airport in Kabul, and he was blocked by his opponents. And then spent the next couple of years living essentially as a captive, although called, you know, guest, uh, in the UN headquarters in Kabul, not able to leave, not able to rejoin his family, not able to do anything, just to stay there, while civil war kind of ravaged his country. And then the Taliban entered, and when they entered Kabul, um, the night they entered Kabul, the first thing that they did is they went to the UN compound where he was being held, and um, they killed him, uh, tortured him and killed him. Um, and they strung his body up along with his brother's body uh, from a street lamp in central Kabul, and I've spoken to so many people um, who who saw him hanging there. Um, uh, you know, young children who rode their bikes uh, to see it. I mean, he was left to hang there for a, a number of days, he and his brother, um, with with uh, Afghan money um, shoved into some of his orifices, you know, in some kind of an insult way. Um, and I've heard people say that they then understood because, you know, initially there was there was a, a sort of popular feeling that, my, gun, my goodness, thank God the Taliban is here. They're going to bring peace, you know, an end to the civil war that's been ravaging Kabul. Um, but then there were people who said that when they saw Najibullah hanging there, they thought, okay, this is not good. This is clearly, <laughs> this is clearly not the kind of peace that we want. I don't, I don't mean to, um, I don't mean to even, laugh, but it's just like that's not a good sign <laughs> for sure when you see someone hanging yes, That was the feeling. That was the feeling. That, that, that initial enthusiasm was already wedded. And um, so I, I – but I didn't – I'm not really a historical – novel writer and I didn't really want to do that but I thought that his story and his interaction with war and conflict uh, and his complexity uh, and his ending that the whole thing could parallel the story um, told in modern life and they led to the creation of the character who who fictionally was with him in this period when he was in the UN house as kind of a young servant boy and feels and attempted to save him and feels guilt-ridden that he failed and will now have an, another chance uh, for and, and another great fear that he will fail again. Yeah, and you know, you talk about the complexity of these characters and that's so, it's so fascinating to me how somebody in a position, especially someone in a position of power, 
can embody all of these different things like you know like where you know he's a, a devoted family man but yet he may have participated mm-hmm. or been responsible for some like horrible atrocities and you know, mm-hmm. it's like there's like the old joke that like Hitler was loved his kids or whatever, or like loved his mm-hmm. dog. You mm-hmm. know, and it's like, do you? I mean, first of all, um, and forgive me for not knowing the history properly, but is it factual that there were atrocities that he was uh, responsible for, or is that speculative? There, it, no, no, that's it, it's it's factual that that there were atrocities that he was responsible for to one level or another, um, and. You know, I've heard people say it is very factual that he himself with his own hands, blah, 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 but I'm not sure that that, I don't know for sure if that is he himself with his own hands, but, you know, but I wouldn't rule that out. So, because like, it makes me think of leaders and, you know, like, are there any leaders who have their hands clean, political leaders in this world? You know, I'm sure there, yeah. maybe, maybe there's one, but like in your work as a journalist and I'm, I'm sure in your work. Um, you know, at the embassy and communications, you're brushing up against a lot of powerful people who have um, heavy responsibilities and have very tough decisions to make. Like, do you have mm-hmm. any insight into the nature of power and the kinds of people who acquire it based on the work that you've done? Like, it, You know, that that is such a fascinating question in itself. And I, I suspect there will be the same levels of grayness that we find in answer to these other questions that I like so much. I mean, really. But, you know, that old saying about power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. I mean, you do see that over and over again. And yet, and yet, I mean, I hope through these letters, Najibullah, these imaginary letters, but they, you know, that Najibullah is somebody you could like. You know what I mean? I mean, as well as, so that you feel something, you know, as his life ends. Um, and yet, you know, and yet there, the, the, there are many who absolutely think he he was a criminal. Well, Fewer right now because there's almost a nostalgia for that time historically in Afghanistan. And because, again, due to illiter- illiteracy and control of history, people don't, you don't always know what people are hearing and if they're hearing uh you know, a real form of history or some created form. Yeah, it's funny to hear you say that because I was actually thinking today, earlier, and I forget what prompted it. Maybe it was prepping for this interview, but I was thinking about George W. Bush and how easy and, and tempting it, it is to, like, uh, simplify him, you know, and just to paint mm-hmm. him with one brush. But all of this stuff, all anywhere anywhere there's a human being, there's complexity. <laughs> That's uh, right. And it's very, That's right. you can't boil somebody down, you know, uh, in, in that way, you know, it might be more convenient or more emotionally convenient to do that. But if you really want to try to understand, you've got to be willing to go down into the weeds. And I think when you do that, a lot of the time, um, you know, you wind up finding parts of them that you like and parts of them that totally fr- yes. frighten you. And it's like, it's a difficult experience to, um, parse in the end because it leads to I don't know, a variety of different responses that are often at odds with one another. And how do you resolve that ultimately, you know? Right. And and I think this goes back to your earlier question about, you know, the differences between journalism and fiction. Why why fiction instead of journalism, especially because journalism has a more steady paycheck. But I think that this is this is it, the opportunity to to not simplify them. Uh, which journalism encourages you to do, you know, the the ability to ask those questions and write directly into the gray, um, just for yourself, not even for any readers, uh, to try to to try to parse it out. Mm. And so, 
do you have a sense of what the uh, the Afghan people think of the United States? I mean, I know that's a really broad question, but like, is, is there a lot? I mean, is there a lot of antipathy toward our country over there? Is that the broad sentiment, or is there? It is a broad question, but I will tell you that at this point in in the process, um, yes, there is antipathy. I mean, we've made a lot of mistakes. You know, we've we've there's been a lot of collateral damage. Uh, we've shown insensitivity to the culture. Um, people have have died unfairly. Uh, in 2004, when I was there, there was almost this. You know. I mean, there was a lot of appreciation and and, and almost reverence for um, for the United States. I went to Kandahar and I stayed um, in a house where there was a man who had who had managed to get one of Mullah Omar's cows when Mullah Omar fled, and he took me out to show me the cow and he gave me some milk from the cow and he talked to me about the period of the Taliban and how hard it had been for him, and he said, you know, I. I didn't. I thought my whole life would be like this. Somehow we couldn't get out from under them. And then you guys came and did it in a week. And you did it for your own reasons, but still, we're so grateful. You know. And that that time is is much gone because we because of a variety of reasons. We we were afraid, so we looked at people from behind, you know, guns and on top of tanks, and that's not a way to be in somebody's home. And then we we. We killed people uh, with good intentions, but, you know, at wedding parties or elsewhere. I mean, you know, one mistake after another after another, uh, it's hard to shake that out of people's minds. And yet there are, and yet you'll still find many people will say thank you. Thank you for taking interest in our country, for all you've done. I mean, there's an awareness that, you know, U.S. taxpayer money has has gone uh, so frequently and in such large amounts to trying to help Afghans, and certainly the women uh, feel like, you know, but for the support of my, you know, Western sisters and brothers, you know, things would be so much worse. So it's complicated. So it's complex. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, like I have sometimes the, you know, the attempt to, I mean, there's a, a big part of me that just thinks, uh, you know, that, that wants to just be a pacifist. You know, like mm-hmm. pure. Yeah, me know? too. Like, like <laughs> me this, too. This just too. this just doesn't work, and we can think that it does, and it can be tempting to say, you know, we're going to use force, but you know, like, do you, is that how you feel, or do you see that it's even it's gray here again? You know what I'm saying? Because I think of uh, Obama's Nobel Prize accept or Peace Prize acceptance speech, where he essentially said, "I'm I'm not a, a, a total man of peace," which has been exemplified, you know, over and over again with. Um, the way we've done things uh, since he's come into office, it hasn't been, you know, uh, daisies and yes. putting daisies in the guns. You know, there's been a lot of killing, and yeah, you know, I, I read that speech and I listened to it, and you know, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of sense there. But there's a part of me that's just like, and, and even when you take it from that macro level, uh, and you take it from uh, international conflict zones down to like the issue of guns here at home. I get so fed up with it after a while that part of me just wants to be like, no, done, enough. It doesn't work. Yeah. We have to try something else. That's where I'm going to stand. And I'll let everybody else, you know, quibble over the details. Like, is that where you are? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much where I am, you know. And I've discussed this with Chris Hedges. You mentioned him. And he, he also says he's not a pacifist. Or at least that's what he has said in the past. I don't know if he's changed. Um, but it feels like... 
you know, if you want to get Osama bin Laden um, and you end up finding the house where he is in Pakistan and dropping down in, was all the rest of it necessary? And it also feels like collateral damage is a very sanitary way to say that you've robbed, you know, people of their lives for no good reason. Well, yeah, I mean, I could so, I could spend a whole hour on this, the the, uh, yeah. the semantics of warfare. Like, tar- you know, there's all these phrases that are very scrubbed and they drive me crazy. Yes, that's right. Me too. So I, I, I actually think in the end, uh, yeah, I... I don't. I don't think that war is the kind of conflict we need to resolve our problems. There's got to be other ways. So, but we keep doing it. Yeah, you know. I hopefully, like you say. I mean, and I think maybe um, the Israeli uh, situation is, you know, maybe one of the better uh, laboratories, just because of the intensity of the conflict and the multifaceted nature <laughs> of it. But. Uh, like you said earlier about it needing to be a generational thing, it needing to be a community-based thing. You know, it can't just be, mm-hmm. you know, you can't just be standing alone on the street corner thumping your chest. Like, we've got to get organized. You know, people who, yeah. you know, there's got to be ways of putting it into practice and improving communication, and that's going to take a group mm-hmm. effort. And hopefully mm-hmm. hopefully, there's enough uh, human will to make it happen because I, I don't know mm-hmm. how much more evidence we need that, um, bombs and guns don't solve anything. You know, they just perpetuate. Bombs and guns are what are what changes everything. <laughs> That's it. And then when they do, you, the entire course of the life is really is altered. Mm. So uh, before I let you go, I'm interested to know. You know, you've obviously you've, you've done journalism. You've written um, a lot of fiction. Have you ever thought about writing a memoir about your time? It seems like you have such a wealth of uh, of, of great experiences to draw from. Has there been any temptation to do that? No, I think I would be really, really bored. I know, I know, I know the current outcome of that story. <laughs> I don't, I don't outline, and I don't like to know the outcome. And also, for me, it's really the act of writing really is exploring a question, uh, not just writing what happened to me. I, you know, I certainly think that my experiences are incorporated, but the novels are not autobiographical in any way that would be at all obvious. Uh, you know, I'm just exploring the questions that interest me at that time. And I also think that um, you never, I never know if I'm going to get published or not, or what's going to, I mean, so far I've been really lucky, but I never, I never think about readers when I'm writing. It really is a personal act for me. It's just a person, it takes, you know, it takes a couple of years, you know, and you have to give up time hanging out with your friends and your family, and it's got to be personally meaningful. And for me, a memoir wouldn't be that. For me, really, what is that is, is just saying, gosh, I wonder I w- like, for example, your question on a leader. I wonder if you could have a leader that was actually, you know, true to his heart or her heart from the very beginning and didn't change. What would that look like? What would be the pressures on them? What would- and then you sort of like explore, start to explore that question, and you're lost into that, into that story. And the only way I would know to do something like that would be through fiction. Yeah. Well, at this point, I think it might be the only place where a leader like that could possibly live. <laughs> Probably true. <laughs> uh, well, this has been really fascinating, and um, I, you know, I admire all that you've done. It's 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 really inspiring to hear about the work that you you do and the life that you lead. Because I think that um, so many writers that I know, and I think I, this is this applies to me, are spend a lot of time kind of cloistered in our little uh, you know writing 
studies or whatever it is, our offices or our study carols at the library, and, and you actually get out there into the world and get your hands dirty in a way that I think is useful. And I don't know. Kudos to you for that. Well, Brad, thank you, and thank you so much for this. It's been really interesting, a lot of thoughtful questions, things that have made me think, so I really, I really appreciate that opportunity. Okay, you guys, there you go. That is Masha Hamilton. Go get her new book. It's a novel called What Changes Everything, and it's available now from Unbridled Books. You can find Masha online at MashaHamilton.com. You can follow her on the Twitter, where her handle is at Masha Hamilton, and she's also on the Facebook. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Don't forget to get the app, the free official Other People app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the very best way to listen to this program, to access premium content, the full archives, etc. And once again, the app itself is free, so please go get that. Uh, Otherwise, I think that's it. Happy Memorial Day. Enjoy your free time, if you have it, you know. Uh, Go swimming. Eat some food. You know what to do. You don't need my instructions. Go see a movie. You know, maybe go see Francis Ha. And you know what? I said it uh, at the top of the show that everyone's probably fine. Noah Baumbach, Jennifer Jason Lee, uh, Greta Gerwig, they're all fine. I have no idea if they're fine. I just hope that they're fine. They probably are not fine. I don't know. Is anyone fine? It's hard to be fine these days. Please remember that Saul Bellow wore a fedora and that John Coltrane died on July 17th, 1967. Thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. Uh, You know I appreciate it. I'll be back in just a few days with another program, another episode, another author. Uh, I have a lot of good ones coming up. I think you're going to be pleased, so stay tuned. Uh, Okay, I'm going to go outside. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go outside and walk into the desert sunshine of Los Angeles. And I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to wander aimlessly outside into the desert, and I'm going to try to be free.